Father, we uh, rejoice in this day, and we thank you that we can gather here and uh, worship you. We thank you, Father, that you give us life and that you give us hope. We do pray for all the other churches on the hill and even off the hill as we all praise your name uh, this morning, that your word would go forth, that your name would be proclaimed, and that your goodness would be seen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Children, you can go to Sunday school. And uh, while the kids are going to Sunday school, why don't you turn and greet one another? Number two. (laughs) Hey, thanks for. I'm on. I'm live. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Idlewild Bible Church. If you are visiting for the first time, if uh, if you need a Bible, uh, one of the ushers can bring you one. If you raise your hand, if you don't have a Bible, take it home with you. Uh, Yesterday, I heard a little bit this morning. uh, We had a little bit of uh, spiritual awakening at our house. Uh, That was more of a joke, but uh, Cora, uh, uh, my two-year-old, when she gets up in the morning, we read. From a little Bible together, and, uh, and then we pray. And yesterday, she really wanted God to show up. Um, she, uh, we read the Bible story, then we prayed, and she's like, "God, come!" And she's, she's like, "Where, where's God?" And and, he, and then she goes to the window, and she goes, "Oh, God, he, he's outside." He's like, "It's coldy. God, come!" And she spent she spent the morning, uh, really most part of the morning, she just was was asking God to come. And uh, I don't know. I wonder if we can learn from her. Um, and anticipating that God would be with us. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 51. If you want to turn with me in your Bible. Uh, the Psalms are a collection of poems. And historically, the Psalms, they served as Israel's songbook. Uh, we don't quite do it here, but I know there's hymnals in one of the bookshelves back there. But they would turn to a Psalm and they would read it, they would read it and they'd sing it. And they would praise God through the Psalms. And uh, collectively, they make up the Psalms and have uh, a major purpose, which is to uh, encourage Israel, to cur- encourage us um, in, in happiness and in holiness. And one of the major themes of the Psalms is that the Lord reigns, that he is good and that he is, he is king. The Psalms provide us with clues to how followers of God re- relate their faith in their daily lives. It expresses the joys and the sorrows, the pain and the pleasures of life before the eyes of God, full of beauty and truth, the psalm, the poetry of the psalm continues to comfort many of God's people and challenge them to holiness. And this morning we're going to be challenged towards holiness as we take a look at Psalm chapter 51. But will you pray with me now? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mercy and the love that you give to us. We thank you that you teach us through your word. And we pray that as we read it, as we study it, as it is explained, that you would speak to our hearts and open up our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. A beautiful psalm before us. I'm a, I'm a sports fan. My favorite sport is baseball. And I grew up uh, during what has now been called the steroid era of baseball. Does that ring a bell with anybody? And uh, I remember growing up and you kind of hear about these guys and, and you wonder why some guys get traded and one some, why some guys are on like injury leave of some sort. And uh, some of the more famous players that, that grew up in the steroid era or, or were a part of the steroid era uh, was Jose Canseco. Uh, he wrote a famous book called Juiced. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, uh, Barry Bonds, Jason Giambi, and uh, Manny Ramirez and Alex Ramirez, uh, Rodriguez. And uh, one of the more memorable moments of the steroid era was the race between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire to break Roger Maris's home run uh, record. And in uh, the 1997 season, it seemed like both of them were going to be able to reach it. It was just a matter of who was going to reach it first. And uh, during a game between the, the, the Chicago Cubs and the Oakland A's, uh, Mark McGuire hit his 61st and his 62nd home run to break the record. I remember being in my parents' house, and I was sitting on the ground watching TV, and uh, I ex- you expected like this towering fly ball. He hits it out of the park, not just over the fence. Um, but in a, in, a, in a sense, it was kind of like a wimpy home run, um, if you could call it that, because it was just like a line drive that went out over left field. And uh, what's interesting is that these guys – uh, aren't necessarily remembered for their home runs, although they did hit a lot. And their reputations really didn't stay intact uh, because they became a part of the steroid era. There was a report 
uh, that was done by, by a senator, uh, Senator Mitchell, that, that uh, the commissioner of baseball had asked him to do this investigation over two years. And, and what happened was on, the, I forget the exact day, but uh, 80 names of, of these baseball players or so, they, um, their names were on this list. And, and in a sense, it was like Nathan saying to David the prophet, you are the man, you guys are the cheaters, you're the ones that use steroids. And uh, their response, the baseball player's response to, to this Mitchell report uh, was telling about the human nature. There were some guys like Andy Pettit of the New York Yankees who was quick to confess. He had used steroids for, for two days out of his whole career to, to heal from an elbow injury. And then there were guys like Jose Canseco who, who said that they did it the whole time, their whole career. And uh, whatever you think about baseball, the steroid era, I think that uh, it helps us to see two truths mainly about, human, about the human heart and about sin. The nature of humans is that we are fallen. Like Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. America's greatest pastime had about 20 years of time where it was just all about steroid use. And even pitchers got involved in it in order to throw harder and be, and be a better pitcher. And then the second thing is that the nature of sin, where sin leads to more sin. For some, it was easy to come and confess, and that was a good thing. Uh, but for others, it meant years of meeting with attorneys and crafting uh, untruthful statements while still answering the questions. It, it led to more lies. And uh, ultimately, many of these guys who, who did great things in baseball won't be in the Hall of Fame because their reputation was, was scarred uh, beyond recovery. In the same way, these truths are evident in the historical setting of the passage of our psalm, uh, which Micah read earlier, where, where Nathan the prophet goes to King David and he convicts him of his sin. This is the same King David who administered justice and equity to all the people. It's the same King David who the Lord said that it was, he was after his own heart. It was the same King David, as you guys will all remember, uh, who as a boy, he stood up and slayed the giant Goliath when the rest of Israel cowered in fear. This same King David used his position of authority to call Bathsheba to his house to commit adultery. But not only that, when he learned that she was pregnant, he brought uh, her husband home from the battle front uh, that he might sleep with his wife, and, and, and somehow cover up the, the sin. But when Uriah wouldn't go to his house, even when he was in town, uh, it, it failed. And so he was sent back to the battlefield, and David arranged that, that Uriah would be killed in battle. So David's adultery led to Uriah's murder. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. And David's response to the story was anger and justice. He was angry at the, at the rich man, and he demanded justice. He said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan's words to David, you are the man. I could imagine that Nathan's words to David were, were convicting, like a shot to the heart. Feelings of shame, feelings of embarrassment. feeling of conviction and the need to make it right. I'm sure at some point in your life as well, me included, you have felt the same thing. The kind of feeling you get when you've been caught by your parents for lying 
or stealing. You get caught by your teacher at school for cheating on a test. You get caught by your spouse for lying about where you were. Or you get caught by your kids for doing the same thing you told them not to do. In a similar sense, this morning I think that we are all like King David. Where there have been moments in our lives when someone comes to us or the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. And we hear, you are the man. Or you are the woman. Or you are a sinner. Me included. And what do we do when we, when we fall into sin? What do we do when we finally recognize what I did was wrong? How do you respond to it? I bet some of you have a routine by which you go about making your sin go away. Maybe you clean the house or you do something kind for a friend or you put a little bit more of money into the offering basket when it comes by. Somehow you're trying to cover up your sin. Or perhaps you try and justify your sin. You say to yourself, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or it could have been worse. Or it wasn't my fault. I had to do that. In the end, you're actually saying, I think I'm, I think I'm a fairly good person. I didn't mean to say that. Plus that, that person, they, they kind of deserved it. Perhaps you offer fake apologies. Where you say things like, I'm sorry you were offended. Or I didn't intend for you to be hurt by what I said. In a way, you're saying, it's, it's not my fault that you're so sensitive. You apologize without really taking responsibility for what you have done. Or perhaps you even try to ignore your sin, thinking that your sin of confession, when you first put your faith in Christ, is enough to cover up the rest of your sin. And certainly his, his work on the cross and his resurrection from the, from the dead is, is enough to take away your sin. But there's, a, there's an aspect of the Christian life where you have to continually depend upon the Father to cleanse you and to make you new and renew His image in you. But you might head down a slippery slope of what Paul says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's response, he says, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why not just keep on sinning so that you can put God's grace more and more on display? Psalm 51 provides for us the biblical example of how we are supposed to deal with sin, and that is to confess our sin before God. Like David, the author of Psalm 51, our response to sin, no matter how heinous or how minuscule, should be one of confession. After being confronted by Nathan, he writes this psalm, a beautiful psalm of confession in which he recognizes who God is, he takes responsibility for what he has done, and he asks God to restore him. More than that, Psalm 51 looks ahead at the person of Jesus Christ who offers us forgiveness of sin and teaches us how we're supposed to respond to sin by confessing our sin, that we may rest in God's salvation and walk in righteousness. Now you could probably spend many weeks, many, many weeks on Psalm 51, but I have like 20 minutes. And uh, I have three main points for you that we're going to look at. Uh, the first one is that we're going to take, uh, take a look at how, how David understands sin, understanding sin. Then we're going to take a look at how he prays. We're going to look 
and see how Psalm 51 provides for us a way to pray. And then we're going to consider how David provides for us an example of what repentance looks like to see how we ought to act in true repentance. Jesus Christ offers us forgiveness of sin and a response when we sin should be confession in order to rest in God's salvation once again and walk in righteousness. So starting with an understanding of sin, let's read Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. These opening words reflect the nature of our relationship with God, for we are utterly dependent on the mercy of God. David throws himself at God, and he says, I can't do it on my own. There's no way that I can cleanse myself of my sin. David understands that if he, if he is to be forgiven of his adultery and his murder, that it will only be an act of the mercy of God. He appeals to God's mercy and begs that his transgression will be blotted out. And then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. These washing and cleansing acts, again, are an appeal to God's love and God's mercy. God is the one who is able to cleanse the heart of the sinner. David understands that though he acted in his sin, that there is no act he can do on his own behalf to cleanse his own heart. This speaks against those that try and cover up their sin or make penance for their sin or somehow... I don't know, try and forgive their self, themselves of their sin. And it teaches us that in order to understand sin, we have to, to realize, we have to recognize that, that forgiveness of sin only comes from God. Then he says in verse 3, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Here we see David take responsibility for our sin so that when we, when we think about our sin, we have to recognize and tell God, this is my sin. It's interesting with a two-year-old at home and a new baby, uh, I, have, I feel like I get lots of illustrations uh, from, from Cora and from Mabel. Uh, Cora is quite the, uh, the ball of energy. But uh, one of my, not my favorite things, but one of the, the moments that I think about often is when she's so quick to pass blame uh, onto her baby sister. Uh, a lot of times she'll sit at her little table, which is in the kitchen, and she plays Play-Doh. And uh, we have a rule that, that Play-Doh doesn't come into the living room. And, uh, and somehow Play-Doh ends up in the living room. And uh, we'll ask her, hey, how'd the Play-Doh get there? And she goes, oh, baby sister. And uh, <laughs> I think it reveals... How, how we view sin often where it's like, well, it's not really my fault. And then, I mean, baby sister, she's two months old. She's not moving any Play-Doh. And, uh, yeah, she's a, she's a funny girl. But David understands that his sin is an offense against God. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. But before them, his sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And I think that we as, as believers or as, as, as non-believers think that our sin has, has uh, limited consequences, that somehow it only affects us and it doesn't affect anyone else. We think to ourselves in an individualistic, kind of autonomous way where we're not accountable to anyone. And what we do in private, what we do in secret on our computer, what we do uh, at the bank or, or on our taxes, whatever it might be that nobody else is going to see. 
and we tell ourselves that what we did isn't that big of a deal or doesn't make much of a difference. But first and foremost, the psalm teaches us that sin is an offense against God, that it breaks the peace between you and God. David recognizes this when he says in response to Nathan's word in 2 Samuel uh, 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And that is why you, fellow Christian, as we live out our lives before the Father, that we must continue to confess our sin because every time we sin, we are offending God. Now David's words in the latter part of verse 4 are interesting in that it might be a little bit, of conf- little bit confusing. In a way, David is pronouncing judgment on himself because he knows that he, broke God, that he broke God's law. As Charles Spurgeon writes, he could not present any argument against divine justice if it proceeded at once to condemn him and punish him for this crime. His own confession and the judge's own witness of the whole transaction placed the transgression beyond all question of debate. And then the, the, the first section wraps up with these two beholds. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is to say, David doesn't try to find an excuse for his sin, but is stating what we have already been saying before, that as humans, it is in our nature to sin. It's been interesting as we transition in, in our family life from one kid to two kids. I've always heard about it, but I get to experience it firsthand now, where uh, you think that, that when, when we brought the baby home from the hospital, uh, Cora would be like, look, here's all my toys, and look, here's all my snacks, and look, my parents, they love us. They'll love you too, and they'll feed you. Instead, Cora's response to, uh, to Mabel at the start was, no baby, no baby. She was filled with jealousy, with anger. She would, she would want to give kisses to Mabel, uh, where she would uh, squeeze her head really hard. And, uh, but I think it reveals to us the nature of humans, where we in our sinfulness, because of the fall, we fall short, and we're in need of a Savior. To take it a step further, in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. No one can teach our innermost nature but the Lord, but he can instruct us to profit. The Holy Spirit can write the law in our heart, and that is the sum of practical wisdom. He can put the fear of the Lord within, and that is the beginning of wisdom. He can reach Christ in us, and he is essential wisdom. Such poor, foolish, disarranged souls as ours shall yet be ordered aright, and the truth and wisdom shall reign within us. David appeals to God to give him wisdom and truth. So I ask you this morning, what is your view of sin? Do you think that your sin has no consequences? Have you considered how your sin affects your God first and your relationship with others? And do you understand that it is only by God's mercy that you can be forgiven of your sins? That there is nothing that you can do to cleanse your own heart. It has to be a work of God. Then the following verses provide us a way to pray. David begins his prayer for forgiveness of sin, saying, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David's words echo the instructions of Moses to the elders of Israel 
upon the brink of the Passover. Exodus 12.22 says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. One commentator writes as well, Here he uses phrases borrowed from the ritual language of the cult to illustrate a spiritual process. At the rites of purification, those who have been healed of leprosy or have been defiled by coming into contact with corpses were sprinkled with a bunch of hyssop. More than the echo of the Exodus, David's words look ahead to the atoning sacrifice that Jesus would be on the cross. David realizes that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He looks ahead to think about passages like in 1 John where where Christ is our propitiation for sin. He is the atoning sacrifice that provides a way of forgiveness. And then David says one of the more famous uh, phrases of of this psalm is, And I shall be whiter than snow. Though red like crimson, your sins can be white as snow. And this would have been a great verse to reflect upon a few weeks ago, right? When the whole mountain was covered in snow. David continues, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The imagery here is rich because David communicates that that he is feeling so much guilt and so much shame for his sin that his bones have become broken. He feels a regret for his sin and he begs of the Father to let his bones rejoice. And then he repeats again, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. As is typical in the Psalms, the richness of the text is shown through repetition. And so David once again requests of God that he would blot out his iniquities, that he would make them go away. And then verses 10 through 13 provide kind of the heart of David's prayer for us, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David petitions God, for a new heart. He doesn't ask God for his old heart to be made better. He asks God and he prays to God that he would have a new heart and that his spirit would be renewed. David, caught in his sin, asks God to make him new and renew his spirit. He knows that his sin has caused division between him and God and he prays that God would keep him close. Perhaps David, in this verse, remembers the fate of his predecessor, King Saul, who, as you may know, though great at first and appointed by God, had the Spirit of the Lord leave him, and David fears that this might happen to him. There's obviously contrast here between the ministry of the Holy Spirit after the giving of the Spirit after the day of Pentecost, which is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, To which Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. David fears that the Spirit will be removed from him, but he asks for restoration, that he may have the joy of God's salvation. It is the joy in God as the motivating force of man's actions, which, which alone is able to transform a broken heart.
For he knows that his obedience is only going to happen with the help of God. So the Psalm of David, it teaches us a way to pray. He tells us that we need atonement, that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. He teaches us that the effect of sin penetrates the whole person, that nothing within you is good, nothing within me is good, and that it is God's role, that it is God's responsibility, that it is God's ability to cleanse our hearts, to make our hearts new. He gives us the hope of the Spirit. He asks that His joy would be restored. And you can see that there's a progression of God's work in the life of the believer where it is only when payment of sin has been made that joy can be given. This is the way that the believer ought to pray. And the next verses teach us how the believer ought to act after confession. It gives us an understanding of repentance and can be summarized in three words, testimony, praise, and brokenness. The response of the psalmist to the grace of God are these three things, testimony, praise, and brokenness. That is, David having been washed clean with sins whiter than snow and remembered no more, says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That is, David will testify to the goodness of God. He will bear witness to the joy of God's salvation. Perhaps you've had a time in your life when you meet somebody who has just come to faith in Christ and the joy that they feel over the many, many years perhaps of sin that they've held on to with guilt and with shame. And they they, they hear of this Jesus and they learn of this Jesus and, and he forgives them of their sins and they're ecstatic about the new life that they have. And they want to go and they want to evangelize and they want to tell everybody. And, and, and David here, that's what he says he'll do. That he will teach transgressors God's ways and sinners will return to God. And then he says in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Jesus, or David responds to his confession by teaching others with testimony. And then he praises God with his lips. I'm sure at some point, for those of you that have attended church for a while, when you come to church on a Sunday morning and you, and, and you know in your heart that there are things that have, that have gone wrong, there are things that, that you have said or done, things that you have felt or even thought in your mind, and you come to church on Sunday and, and, the, and the praise that comes from your mouth is, is fake or it's untrue or you don't even sing it, sing it all. When the pastor up here preaches, and your heart's turned off to the Lord. When we're caught in our sin like that, as Paul says, it only leads to death. And sin leads to more sin unless we confess our sin. And then the joy of our salvation is restored to us. We can teach others about the ways of God. And we can declare praise from our lips. Could it be that that the people of IBC are characterized as those that are quick to confess sin? to bear witness to the work of God and to praise Him with our lips? Could we be people who, as David says in verse 17, have broken hearts, have broken spirits, 
where we know that our dependence upon God is real. The words penned by David in Psalm 51 declare to us an understanding of sin, a way to pray, and an understanding of repentance. Even more so, the Psalm of David points ahead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate sacrifice for sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Psalm 51 shows us the extent of sin, which affects the whole person. For we were brought forth in iniquity and in sin where we conceived. Sin that affects the whole body where the psalmist says, Let the bones you have broken rejoice. But there is good news. God is able to create clean hearts in you. He is able to give you a new heart. He is able to renew your spirit to give you strength to keep going and pursuing in the pursuit of righteousness. He is waiting to restore you to the joy of his salvation. The words of Psalm 51 look ahead to the revelation of scripture in which by now should probably sound familiar to you from 1 John where it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news today. He is faithful and just. Jesus Christ offers us forgiveness of sin. And our response to sin when we, are, when we see it should be confession that we may rest in God's salvation and walk in righteousness. And I thought this morning that there would be no better way to respond to this than to confess our sin together. You'll find in your bulletin on the, on the note page on the backside a confession, and it'll be up on the screen. And I would love it if we could stand together, if we can confess these words, and that we would pray in our hearts that God might forgive us and cleanse us and make our hearts new. So if you'll stand with me, and we will read together. And as we read, think about the sins that God is taking away, how he is cleansing us, that he is creating in you a clean heart. Let's read together. Have mercy on us, O God, in your steadfast love. In the fullness of your mercy, blot out our offenses. Wash away all our guilt and cleanse us from our sin. Create in us clean hearts, O God. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. Against you only have we sinned and done evil in your sight. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew right spirits within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. In addition, uphold us with a willing spirit. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Give us the joy of your help again and strengthen us with a willing spirit. O Lord, open our lips and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. Create in us clean hearts, O God. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beautiful words that you've given to us in Psalm 51. For your inspired word, which teaches us, which guides us, which instructs us, which convicts us. I thank you, Father, that, that we have a way towards forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ, who gives us life, who gives us hope, who gives us peace, who makes things right with you. I pray, Father, this morning that, that for those of us that, that have not confessed our sin, that we would confess our sin even now in this moment. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives of those that are here, bearing witness to your goodness, convicting their hearts of sin, and that we would respond like we've read in Psalm 51. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your truth, and for the life that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.